If you would open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Our text today is, as it has been the last three Sundays, verse number 6. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. This year we've been looking at the four royal titles mentioned here in verse number six and how they were and continue to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus the Messiah. Thus far we have seen, first of all, wonderful counselor. And we see this fulfilled that Jesus is wise and wonderful in his teaching. But his teaching contradicted the assumptions that many people had. They were looking in a particular direction and he went in a different direction. And we see this easily enough in the Beatitudes when he begins saying blessed and people's minds are already racing toward what they think blessing is. And then he says are the poor in spirit. What we see in Jesus is that he opens up new possibilities that were thought to be impossible. We see this in his actions. He heals those that are sick, those who seemingly cannot be cured. He cures. Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, takes that which is considered impossible and makes it possible. As Gia read to us today in Luke chapter 1, nothing is impossible with the Lord. It is for this reason, among many, that the religious leaders hated him and wanted to kill him because they saw him as a threat to the established power arrangements. This is the way things are. These are the things you can do. These are the things you can't do. And suddenly Jesus comes along and does that which cannot be done. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. Mary anticipates this, as Zib read to us last Sunday in Mary's Magnificat. So from early on, I think the religious leaders understood, perhaps even better than those who believed in Jesus, those who did not believe in him understood what a threat that he was. Jesus challenges the world's vision of things, and he calls us to do the same. It's not simply a matter of going against the flow, of being contrary, that whatever the world says, we will say the opposite. It is, in fact, seeing things as they truly are. To go beyond all the assumptions that most people hold to discern how the world really works. The second title is Mighty God. We get the divine part from God, the deity part. It's the mighty part that may throw us. Because originally, as Isaiah writes us, it speaks of military might. But when Jesus comes into the world, he is not someone who is marked by military might. He doesn't use power in the normal sense. You know, the Roman Empire, they were the mighty ones, if you wish. Um, Jesus shows us that in fact his might is not seen in military power. He is the one who in fact heals the sick. But more than that, he casts out demons and he calms a stormy sea. He has the power to make life possible and therefore he is the mighty God. Then everlasting father, we looked at last week, and this may in fact really throw us because we think of Jesus as the son and not the father. But as we saw 
the fathers, the kings, the father kings were in fact had certain duties. They were to feed the sheep, you know, take care of their people. They were to strengthen the weak. They were to heal the sick, bind up the injured, to bring back those who had wandered off and to seek the lost. And this is precisely what Jesus did. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And not just for the time he was here, but for every generation after. And therefore, he is the everlasting Father. For every generation, Jesus is in fact the one who cares for his people as a father does. Today's the fourth title, the final one, Prince of Peace. And I suspect this is the one, if I were to ask you, um, which would be the easiest one for you to explain, this would be the one. This is the one that people say, well, I get this. I know what this is. Um, let me see if I can challenge your thinking on this. Prince may, in fact, throw us a bit. Uh, we've sung in one of the carols, King of Angels. I mean, Jesus is king, and why is he referred to as a prince? Well, I'd point out a couple of things. First of all, prince is a royal title. Okay? And so it is appropriate to regard Jesus with a royal title as someone who is part of the monarchy. But secondly, he is of royal descent. He is the son of a king. The Messiah would come from the house of David. And from the gospel accounts that we've heard read to us today, we see that Jesus is from the line of David. In both genealogies, we didn't read them today, but in Matthew's as well as in Luke's, we see that Jesus comes from David, the royal line. And then we heard read that he was born in the city of David, that is Bethlehem. So Jesus is appropriately seen as a prince. I think it is the matter of peace that most people get wrong. It's a matter of what most people think when it comes to the matter of peace. Children, I think, would be able to say, I know what this is, I know what peace is, it's when people stop fighting. It's the end of hostility. In reality, I think every culture has its own definition of peace. Um, Tacitus, uh, one of the first century Roman historians, wrote about the Romans in Britain. They plunder, they slaughter, and they steal. This they falsely name empire. And where they make a wasteland, they call it peace. You know, when they've destroyed everything, then they say, yes, we have peace. I don't think this is what is in mind when we hear of Jesus being the Prince of Peace. Peace in Scripture is much richer and fuller than this. The word in Hebrew is shalom. Um, it's translated different ways in our English Bibles, and so sometimes we may in fact miss some of this. In the famous letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon, this is in Jeremiah 29, this is what the Lord Almighty, the King of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So, seek the peace. I find it interesting that the ESV has welfare. 
That is to say, it isn't a matter of no more fighting, but it is in fact the good, what is best, the prosperity, if you wish, of that society. Later in the same letter, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The NIV has plans to prosper you. Again, the ESV has welfare, plans for welfare. But this time the ESV has a note and it says peace. And indeed that's the case. In both of these passages, it is peace that God has plans for them to give them peace, to give them shalom. The welfare of God's people is included in this word that we call peace. It is in John 14, I think, that we are given great insight into the matter of peace. This is the night before Jesus was crucified and he's speaking to his disciples. And he said to them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Shalom was and is a word used by Jews as both a greeting and a farewell. It is here that he speaks as a farewell. He is giving his peace to them. After the resurrection, he greets them and he says to them, peace be with you. It is of particular interest that Jesus uses this word beyond the fact that this is customary, this is conventional, this is what the Jews did. Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics we are told in the Old Testament of the Messianic Kingdom. When the Messiah comes, when there is a new order, there will be peace. And as one writer put it, the new order is simply the peace of God in the world, the shalom of God in the world. The world is powerless to give peace. We are surrounded by hatred, selfishness, bitterness, malice, anxiety and fear that any attempt at peace is quickly overwhelmed. But it's not just, it's not just during our time, though it may seem that way. Jeremiah wrote about the false prophets, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The disciples lived, and Jesus did, during the time known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was achieved by the sword. And many anticipated that when the Messiah came, he would achieve peace in the same way. But again, they're thinking of peace as the cessation, cessation of hostility, that they in fact will then be in charge. No, Jesus promises his peace, my peace I give to you. By the way, just a side note, in the next chapter, as he continues to speak in chapter 15, in verses 9 through 10, he speaks of my love. And then in verse number 11, my joy. Here in chapter 14, my peace. His love, his joy, his peace. And as we read of the fruit of the Spirit, we see that it is love, joy, and peace. What is peace? Shalom is described as the way things ought to be. In Ezekiel 34, I read from this last week, about the father kings, they failed to take care of those who were committed to their keeping. And God said he would send a prince to do what they had failed to do. Notice a prince, a prince of peace. 
I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. The Lord will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then we read after that, I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forest in safety. I will bless them and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am, their God, I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yokes and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renewed for its crops, or renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. Simply put all these verses together, things are the way they should be. This is what peace, this is what shalom is. We hear in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. When we think of peace, I think individually, we tend to think in terms of peace of mind. Or outside of ourselves, in terms of peace with our enemies. And when we look at John 14, when Jesus speaks of my peace I leave with you, um, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid, Yeah, that seems to be what Jesus is speaking about. So many have taken the peace of Jesus, the peace of God, is in fact to be something that is peace of mind. Almost a Zen-like quality where you're not troubled by anything. I, I don't doubt that these are included, but I think Jesus had something more in mind. He's not telling them to grin and bear it, that at some point they will... You know the Zen thing will kick in, um, that they will no longer feel pain, they'll no longer have enemies. No, I think it's much more than that. And I say this not because of what we read in the New Testament, but what we find in the Old Testament. That in fact, when the Messiah comes, things will be made right. There's something else. If you've read through the Gospel of John... It hasn't been that many chapters. Actually, in chapter 12, when we find that Jesus is troubled, we read, he says, my heart, now my heart is troubled. And then in chapter 13, when he told them that one of them would betray him, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Go back another chapter to 11 with the death of Lazarus when Jesus comes to the tomb and we hear that he groans within himself. I don't want to be flippant here, but some might say if Jesus is going to give some peace, maybe he should have some peace first before he goes around doling out peace to other people. Why does he say, do not let your heart be troubled, when in fact he was troubled at different parts in the Gospel of John? Or is it a kind of peace that in fact he did not have that he wants to give to others? 
The reality is Jesus is preparing his disciples and John is explaining to us, his readers, what is going on. What happens after Jesus is crucified, he's buried and then he is raised from the dead? It is peace. It is shalom. It begins with peace with God. Paul tells the Romans, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, things are the way they ought to be. The way that God intended them to be. And this is only possible because of what Jesus has done. It is through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, that in fact now things are beginning to be made right with God who created us. I think some people, though, are skeptical about this whole business of Jesus being the Prince of Peace. After all, if he is the Prince of Peace, where is it? Where is this peace? The world hasn't known peace since his appearing. Didn't know peace before he showed up. What Grant read to us today from Luke chapter 2, the story of his birth, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Some might say, where? Where is this, this wonderful peace? You may have noticed that in the carols we sang today, a lot of them have to do with angels, and the angels are the ones who say that peace, there's peace coming because of this child that is born. We need to recognize that if we are to apply the title Prince of Peace to Jesus, it will be contrary to what most people expect. They expect someone who will impose peace on the people. The reality is, as we have seen with the other three titles, what Jesus does is contrary to common expectations, ordinary expectations. The peace that Jesus gives is rooted, deeply rooted in vulnerability. What? How how can that be? We want peace to be security. That we have something, we are secure. Therefore, because we are secure, we can have peace. The reality is that the peace that Jesus gives is contrary to normal categories, normal political categories, the the categories of empires like the Roman Empire to which he was born. Consider what we've heard today and what was told us of his birth, that he is born in a stable. He's proclaimed to shepherds. And as we've seen before, shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in court in the Jewish system because it was believed that shepherds were incapable of telling the truth. And yet these are the people to whom the angels proclaim the birth of Jesus. The angels proclaim peace. We didn't read this, but in Matthew 2, we find out that the king, King Herod, wants to kill this prince of peace, this child. When we come to the ministry of Jesus, we find a restoring of the natural order of things, the order of creation. In each healing, the person is put in a state as the way things ought to be. The woman who had bleeding for 12 years and could not be cured is instantly cured, and she is the way that she ought to be. And Jesus says to her, go in peace. He sends his disciples out on mission 
And he tells them, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Before his death, when Jesus spoke of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen within 40 years, he approached Jerusalem, saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Okay, Jesus, what brings peace? Tell us. If we had known what brings peace, what is it that brings peace? We'll look to the life of Jesus and consider what many people think of peace and power. We don't think of forgiveness as a sign of power, but we see it in the life of Jesus. We see generous sharing. We see caring for the weak, the vulnerable, the unproductive members of society. There is humility in the face of exaltation. There is a readiness to be the last in a society where everyone wants to be number one. And it is a denial of self for the sake of one's neighbor. This is not the world's way of peace. This is not what politicians, what political systems, what empires do. Systems that refuse the things that lead to peace, like forgiveness and generosity, caring for the unproductive, humility and all these things, they, in fact, end up creating a society of hostility, of aggression, of greed, conflict, and violence. So as we saw when we began this series, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not speaking of some ethereal thing that's way, way out there. In fact, what he's speaking of is that his way of doing things, his peace, if you wish, is not the way that we normally think of. It's not grounded in the authority of empire. He will not impose his peace. It is not peace that comes from the end of a weapon. His kingdom comes from the will of the Father. And his peace is quite different from what most imagine. So we should not be surprised that after giving himself freely, after suffering, after being vulnerable, being crucified, being humiliated, and then dying, being put in a tomb, and after his resurrection, he appears to his disciples. And what does he say to them? Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. There's the repetition there. The first one might be, yeah, hey, what's up? You know, the, the Jewish saying, peace be with you. But when Jesus says it again, this is not simply repeating the greeting. This is Jesus saying something much more profound. You see, when he appeared to his disciples, they were locked into a room. They were scared. They were afraid of the political authorities. And to these individuals and to this group, Jesus says, peace be with you. And what Jesus had showed them in his life, I think they didn't quite get it. Now they're beginning to get it. That his peace is different. It restores. It gives life. It is subversive. 
It's not what we expect. It is contrary to our expectations. But it is real. It is real. Paul would write later on, the peace of God which passes understanding. We know that God's peace is to make things the way they ought to be. We're not used to that. We're used to things being messed up. But Jesus comes into the world and he is in fact the Prince of Peace. At this time of the year we remember that, but may we remember it through the coming years, the coming days, that he is the one who gives peace. And we need, we need to look to him to see what that peace is. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that everyone wants peace, but we want it on our terms that we get to define what peace is. And many will not have peace because they will not acknowledge the first step, and that is having peace with you, things being made right between you and us, that we are reconciled through Jesus. It seems that when Jesus came, many were expecting a military figure, someone who would drive out the Romans. And we sort of looked down our noses at these people, say, what foolish people. And yet, in many ways, we have similar thoughts when it comes to your peace, the Prince of Peace. It's all about us having what we want when we want it instead of things being restored. We are your people because of your son. May we follow in his steps and recognize that his peace restores. His peace gives life. His peace is the way things ought to be. Not the way things the way we want things to be. We live in a time in which the birth of your son, Christmas, has been so abused and it's it's unrecognizable. And while we push back against that in many ways We are contaminated. We are tainted by it. Help us, I pray, this Christmas season in these four royal titles of Jesus to once again see him for who he is. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. I thank you that on this day we can come together and worship you. And thank you for your gift, the gift of your son. Again, we remember our brother Dan and ask that you would continue to stand by him. May he have a sense of your presence, even as he's there in the hospital bed. And give him peace. Restore him, we pray. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.